What a joy to be with you, and welcome those who are visiting, be welcome. Would you please open your Bibles to Matthew, Matthew chapter 1. And if you can stand, I will invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Starting verse 1, here's the word of the Lord. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amnadav, and Amnadav, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Then he's going to continue, but we are going to jump to verse 17. And it says, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. You can be seated and let's pray. Father, we, we pray because you command us. And this command is beautiful and it's gracious. They would call upon the name of the Lord and they would hear us and listen to our cry. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be working in us. The same Spirit that brought creation into existence, the same Spirit that brought the Scriptures into existence, the same Spirit that brought us into life with you through regeneration and sanctification, I pray that the same Holy Spirit will bring the work of illumination. Open our eyes. Give us understanding. I pray you would protect me from lies. And we all here need your help. I need your help. The congregation needs your help. We're all needy and beggars. And the beautiful thing is that you are a loving, merciful, and benevolent Father and Lord. And you love to give good gifts to your children. So give us the bread of life this morning, we pray. And Father, we also pray for our brother Dan. Pray to be comforting him. Give him joy. And we pray that through all this process with the death of Ed, that your name would be glorified and others would come to know you. That people know you through the death of your servant. Be with Susan and Clayton and Lucy. Strengthen them, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Some time ago, the Washington Post, they, they published an article entitled, The All-Important Backbone. And in this article, it says, The human spinal column is made up of a couple of dozen bones stacked one on top of the other, called vertebrae. These are tough rings of bone. The spinal column has two vital jobs. The strong, flexible system of bones in, enables you to stand upright. And the circular vertebrae surround and protect your spinal cord, a network of nerves that carries messages from your brain to the rest of your body. About half of the more than 20 billion nerve cells in the body are located in the spinal cord. When the spinal cord is badly hurt, the parts of the body below the damaged part 
of the cord become paralyzed. That's because the cord can no longer send signals from the brain to the muscles to move. If the injury happens in the lower back, it is as if the telephone line connecting the legs and the brain has been cut. No more messages can get through. And why we are talking about the backbone? It's because the covenants, God's covenants with mankind, they work as the backbone of the story of the Bible. It's God's covenants that hold together the whole drama of redemption that we have been looking at. It gives structure, gives coherence. And if you get that understanding of the covenants mess up, guess what? Just like with your backbone, you will have problems. And we have, been see, we have been looking at the six major covenants that give support to the story of the Bible. The covenants with Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and then the, the new covenant. And how the story of the Bible and the six covenants progressively, progressively shows God's one plan of redemption. And I like how Gentry and Wellam, they write, they say, or that's Gentry, he says, the covenants are not independent and unrelated to each other. Rather, they build on each other. It's like a backbone. Disclosing to us God's plan. As the covenants unfold, we discover how God's promises to restore his elect to covenant relationship with him from every tribe, nation, people, and tongue is ultimately achieved through the obedient work of his son, Jesus, which was his plan from all eternity. We think about the covenants, and I believe that the covenants reveal a sovereign promise-making and a covenant-keeping God who never fails. That's what the covenants in the Bible show us. A God who never fails. Man always failing. God never fails. The covenants serve God's redemptive plan and purpose. And His purpose in redemption is to bring His people into His presence. Remember, what is the heart of the covenant promise? Yes. The heart of the covenant promise is... I will be your God, and you will be my people. So all the covenants work for this purpose and this goal, to bring man to God's presence, to serve him as a royal priesthood. And we see that in Genesis, right in the beginning. So, today we're going to continue what we started three Sundays ago, I believe. I missed two Sundays. So... We are going to jump into number three, and then number four, we are going to be looking at the fulfillment of the new covenant in the Gospels, and then the goal of the covenant and the new covenant in particular. But before we go there, I just want to give a brief summary from all that we have seen so far with the covenants, and help you, hopefully, to see the flow that we have in the drum of redemption. So, the first covenant that we call the Adamic Covenant reveals God's heart in creating a people who will serve him as royal priesthood. And that's Genesis 1 and 2. God creates men to dwell with him in his presence, to be his sons and daughters, meaning to resemble his royal image and expand his kingdom as kings and as priests dwelling in his presence. And we know that because God brings them to the Garden of Eden as if he was the Holy of Holies. And then we know that Adam and Eve, what happened? Do they keep the covenant? They fail. They fail. They break the covenant. And God remains faithful to his covenant, as God is always faithful. So I don't, I, I don't believe that there was a covenant of grace and then a, or a covenant of work and then a covenant of grace. No, it's, it's all part of this covenantal relationship of God. And though man is unfaithful, God remains faithful. And then he promises the seed, the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15, that would come, that seed, the male seed of the woman, would come and restore what 
was lost with Adam and Eve, their royal priesthood. And that's the rest of the story of the Bible. So then we have the Noahic covenant. Let me go back here. No, here. The Noahic covenant follows after the Adamic covenant. And the Noahic covenant is very important because we see God preserving the cosmos. We see God preserving creation in order for what? Why is he preserving creation? For the seed to come. The promise he made in Genesis 3.15. So he's preserving, and he preserves a family of Noah. And through that family, you can trace, he goes back to Adam, and through that family, you can trace the seed that will come. Then after the Noah covenant, covenant, we come to the Abrahamic covenant. And right there in Genesis, you remember the exile of the nations, Genesis 11, all the nations, peoples in exile from God's presence. And God calls Abraham to be the instrument of bringing blessings to the nations, bring the nations back into God's presence. And he promises that same seed now through Abraham. It's through Abraham that the seed will come. And then we saw after the Abrahamic covenant, the sons of Abraham formed the nation of Israel. So, especially the son Jacob, and then his other sons, the twelve sons of Jacob, formed the nation of Israel. Jacob gets his name changed. And then we have a nation, they are in Egypt. Remember Joseph? They're in Egypt. God had promised that to Abraham in Genesis 15. God also promised that he would bring them out of Egypt. And that's what we see with the Mosaic Covenant. God bringing his people out of the Sheol, Egypt, death, passing through the waters, bringing them to the mountain where he makes a covenant. That's the Mosaic Covenant or the Old Covenant. It's the covenant with Israel. It's the nation of Israel. And... Right there we start beholding the restoration of Eden. For the first time, God is dwelling with man, just like in the Garden of Eden, as the tabernacle is built. So the first time since the Garden of Eden, the God's presence lost, we have now is the tabernacle, the temple, God's presence being restored, and God calling that nation to be an instrument to the other nations in being a kingdom of priests. That leads to the Davidic Covenant, and let me go back here. The Davidic Covenant institutes a kingship where the rule of God is established among his people with the king functioning as the covenant administrator. What God planned for the nation as a whole will now be implemented through the king and his leadership. So remember, the nation of Israel was called God's son, my firstborn son, my son Israel, and now the king is called God's son because he represents the whole nation. That's with the King David. Thus the Davidic covenant identifies the royal dynasty from which the seed will come. And that's all the covenants coming together. But as we come to the end of the Old Testament, we see how God's plan and promises of restoration have not been fulfilled yet. Amen? You come towards the end of the Old Testament. And where is the new creation? Where is the greater David? Where is the better Exodus? Where is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? It's missing. It's not there yet. The seed of the woman promised in Genesis 3.15 has not yet arrived. And we saw that in our last sermon how it's during those dark times of being in exile. Away from the land. Under the rule of the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, that God start bringing promises of the new covenant. And the prophets, they're not creating something new. They're actually going back all the way to Moses when Moses promised there would be a circumcision of the heart, implying a better covenant, a better exodus, because they all walk together. So the prophets, they speak of different Facets and aspects of this new covenant. The major elements that the prophet speaker is the promise of a new exodus, the promise of a new David, the promise of resurrection, the promise of a new people, the promise of God's presence in a new way through his spirit. 
So, Michael Morales, he says, In short, the prophets declare there would be a new exodus. This new exodus would require a new Passover of redemption and lead to a new mountain of God from which a new covenant would be inaugurated, a new covenant yielding the gifts of Torah and the tabernacling presence, both in a revolutionary transforming manner. The new exodus would also create a newly consecrated Israel. So that's how the Old Testament ends, this expectation. And that's why when you come to the New Testament, what are the first books of the New Testament? You have the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Isn't it fascinating that the New Testament does not start with Romans or Revelation or Hebrews? Because the authors of the New Testament, right there with the gospel, they want to show how the life of Jesus, he is the mediator. He, he is the inaugurator of this new covenant. And that's what I want to do this morning, is just walk briefly through the beginning of the gospels, just to show you how the Lord himself wants us to see Jesus his coming as the fulfillment of all those expectations that we have. And some of you will be frustrated because I'm not going to be exploring the different aspects of the new covenant. What does it mean, certain things about the new covenant, or contrasting the new covenant with the old covenant? That's not the purpose of this series. The purpose of this series is to behold the coherence, the unity of the scriptures, and that's what I want to do today. Okay? Uh, so let's go to Matthew. Open your Bibles to Matthew, Matthew chapter 1. And right there, 1 1, you see, the book of Matthew opens with, in a very spectacular manner leading us to Adam, Abraham, David, says the book of the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And the Greek here is fascinating because we have translated, the ESV has the book of the genealogy. The Greek is the Biblios Geneseos. And the same two words are used in Genesis 2 and Genesis 5. And it's clearly, it's Matthew's way of taking us to Genesis. He's just saying, here's the book of Genesis. But he's not taking us to the creation of Adam, but to the creation of whom? The last Adam. The better Adam. So right here, if you were reading Greek, the, the English doesn't do justice, the book of the genealogy. Though, you, if you read the translations in, in English, you see, and that's the genealogy of so-and-so. In Genesis, you have a lot of that. But it's just the Biblios Geneseos, from Genesis, Genesis that we have, taking us to Genesis. And then we are told that that's the Genesis of whom? What is the next word after? Jesus. Jesus. Jesus, that's the Greek, that's the Greek version of the Hebrew, Yeshua. Yeshua is what we translate as Joshua. And who does Joshua remind you of? All the way back to Moses. He's the one who takes the role of Moses in leading the people into the promised land. And that's what Matthew is showing us, how Jesus now, he is the greater Joshua, who is leading his people into the great victory and the great conquest, not of a specific piece of land in Palestine, but to the whole earth, as was promised to Abraham. So, we see here the book of the Genesis of Jesus, and then you have the word Christ. Christ means the Messiah, the Anointed One. That takes us back to David, Psalm 2. The Messiah, the son of David, the anointed one that the Jews were longed for. And then Matthew makes clear by saying that this Messiah is the son of David. You can see the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. So here is, we saw when you were studying the covenant with David, 2 Samuel chapter 7. The promise of the son of David who'd come and restore, bring the blessings that was promised to Abraham. And then Matthew says... 
not only the son of David, but also the son of whom? Abraham, the seed of Abraham. And to Abraham was promised the seed would bless the nations. And that's exactly what Matthew is showing us, how Jesus is the true seed of Abraham who is bringing the blessing of God to the nations. And what is the blessing of God? Bring them into his presence. The genealogy that Matthew has is very important, how he structures this genealogy. So, three parts. You have group one, from Abraham to David. Then you have from David to exile, and then from the exile to Christ. It's fascinating how David, uh, Matthew, he doesn't mention the leaving, the deportation of the Babylonian exile. For him, he moves from the exile to Christ. Why? Because he's showing us that actually it's Christ who comes to end the exile. Cyrus, under the Persians, when he sends the Israelites back to the land, he did not end the exile. People are still in exile of their sins. And that's what Matthew is showing, how Jesus is the one who is bringing the end of exile. And then he says in verse 17, look in verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14, and then from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And of course, Matthew is keeping some names here because he has a theological purpose. And the purpose is the number 14. And why is he focusing on the number 14? 14, 14, 14. Because in Hebrew, they had the system of gematria, and that's where the le- each letter, each consonant of the, the alphabet has a number. So you come to David, and the David, in Hebrew, you have the Dalet, the Vav, and the Dalet. Dalet is number four, is if you were counting, the Dalet of, is number four. The Vav, the letter in the middle of David, is six. And then you have another Dalet. Dalet is what? Four. So the name David is 14. That's how they would do in ancient culture, in ancient Near East. The letters would be connected to numbers. So sometimes you could just say, I love... 23, and people would be able to figure out who the 23 was. So what Matthew is saying is by saying 14, 14, 14, he's saying, David, 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 the new David is here, and that's Christ Jesus. The David that was promised by the prophets, he has arrived, and the exile is over with the coming of Jesus, and we know that because Think about what brought the exile of mankind from God's presence. What brought exile of mankind from God's presence? Sin. Sin. It was because of sin that Adam and Eve were expelled from God's presence. So how can that be restored? We need to deal with sin. And that's why his name is Jesus, the angel tells Mary. Why? Because he will, uh, he will save his people from what? Uh, from Babylon? From the Romans? From their sins. That's what the angel tells Mary. You need to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Meaning, once you deal with sin... Then the exile is over. The exodus into God's presence is accomplished. So that's what we see here. And then you have the virgin birth. And the virgin birth fulfills Genesis 3.15. Why? Because the promise was of a seed of the woman. It's fascinating because the man carries the seed. The Greek word for seed is permas. The man carried the, the seed. But God promised that the seed would come from whom? How? A woman with a seed, the virgin birth. That's how it takes place. And then we see in chapter 2 of Matthew, you can look in your Bibles, the Gentile wise men coming. That's the blessing of Abraham and David. The Gentiles are coming into God's presence. 
uh, like Moses and Israel, Jesus' life is threatened by Herod, King Herod, just like Pharaoh, he tries to kill the seed of the woman. Jesus goes and then comes out of Egypt. Jesus passed through the waters of the Jordan and is empowered by the Spirit. Jesus is thrown into the wilderness where he conquers Satan's temptation, the opposite of Adam, who was in Eden and was thrown out of Eden because he fell into Satan's temptation. The baptism is very important because during Jesus' baptism, and you can see in chapter 3, that's the baptism of Jesus, it's crucial because here we have the revelation of Jesus as the true royal priest, the king and priest. We know that he's declared to be a king because God declares him to be what? This is my son, God's son, the son of David, the true king. And the baptism also shows that Jesus is the true priest because in Israel, the only people who were washed by another person were the priests. So as Jesus is passing through the baptism, is his way of showing that he is the new priest, the king and priest the, they were waiting. Also fulfills Isaiah 11, Isaiah 61, that said that the spirit of the Lord will be upon the Messiah. Then in Matthew 4, Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, you can see Jesus begins his ministry, uh, then moves to verse 23, and he went through all Galilee teaching. So what, what, going back to chapter, verse 12, now when when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, leaving Nazareth, all fulfilling the, the promises of the prophets. Uh, and then we have, like Moses and Israel, Jesus, after passing through the waters, he ascends the mountain, chapter 5 through 7. He begins to teach a new Torah to his people. Matthew 4 through 7 pictures Jesus as a wise king, one greater than Solomon. Following, right after chapter 7, you can see in your Bible, it starts a series of healings, mighty works of Jesus, and he shows himself to be the greater Joshua and the greater David, and he's battling not against flesh and blood, but against what? The spiritual forces, darkness. And he's releasing people from the kingdom of death, bringing a new creation as people are being saved. Uh, I need to move quickly, so just keep your eyes there <laughs> in the Bible. So the rest of Matthew's account shows how Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. It's the last words of Matthew's gospel, please turn to Matthew chapter 28, and that's just the last words. It says, here's Jesus' promise. And behold, what? I'm with you always. Matthew 28, 20. And behold, I'm with you always. The presence of God. Restored. Emmanuel, God with us. And now he's promising his presence with his people. The account began with Emmanuel and ends with God's presence among his people. So, Frank Stillman, he says, The time of Israel's restoration has dawned, and the vice grip of death on God's human creatures since the time of Adam and Eve has been loosened. The gospel begins and ends, therefore, with the claim that in Jesus, God is once again with his people, as he was in the Garden of Eden, and as he would be, according to Jeremiah and Ezekiel, in the time of Israel's restoration. That's how Matthew briefly shows us Jesus, the fulfillment of all those preceding covenants. Just the first line of Matthew 1.1 takes us to Adam, David, Abraham. Mark, the Gospel of Mark, similar. Mark begins how? The beginning. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the beginning there is the same Greek construction in Genesis 1.1 in the Greek text of Genesis. And then so you have the, the Genesis of whom? Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So here we are, once again, Mark telling us that Jesus is the fulfillment of all those promises. He is the new Adam, the better son of God who was to come. 
And that's the beginning of what? Beginning of the gospel. And we saw that gospel was used primarily by Isaiah, especially Isaiah 52, verse 7, where Isaiah is speaking of the coming of the Messiah and the new creation, and he talks about the good news. Go and proclaim the good news. Announce the gospel. And here is Jesus fulfilling. I can't spend time in Mark because I spent years preaching through Mark. You know that. And I took pains in showing you when I was preaching through Mark how Mark structures his whole gospel in light of the Isaiah promises. He traces Jesus from Galilee on the way to Jerusalem, to Jerusalem, where he gives his life as the suffering servant. So, I'm not going to spend time here. Uh, Luke, the Gospel of Luke and the New Covenant. Just in the beginning of Luke, the, the, the first chapter, you have Gabriel and Mary. And all the words spoken there lead us to the Davidic and the Abrahamic covenants, clearly being fulfilled in these verses. Uh, now you go to chapter 3 of Luke. And in Luke chapter 3, let's go there. Luke chapter 3, starting verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. That's language from Isaiah. Oh, they would open the heavens and come down. And here's taking place. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. The dove reminds us of what? Noah. And the new creation, as he sends the dove, the implication of a new creation coming after the old creation die under the waters. And you know, he bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son. So here's the declaration that Jesus is the true and greater son of God. That's important because the genealogy ends, right after you have the genealogy of Jesus, And the genealogy ends with, look at verse 38. And the sons of Enos, the sons of Seth, the son of Adam, whom? The son of God. So what Luke's telling us, that here is the true son of God, the greater Adam, the better Adam that was to come. So just in the genealogy that Luke has here in chapter 3, verses 23, you can see in your Bibles, verse 23 Through 38, Luke showing us how Jesus is the last Adam. And that's what Paul develops in Romans chapter 5. Another beautiful aspect of this genealogy is how Luke goes through the major covenant mediators besides Moses through this genealogy. So you have Jesus, you have David in verse 31, you have Nashon in verse 23, and he was related to Aaron. So you have the priesthood of Israel here. Then you have Abraham in verse 34, you have Noah in verse 36, and you have Adam in verse 38. It's just beautiful how this whole genealogy traces Jesus all the way to Adam, passing through the major covenants in the Bible. Uh, Luke chapter 4, we see Jesus as the greater Adam and the greater Israel, for he overcomes, where the two other sons of God, Adam and Israel, failed in the temptation. It's just so beautiful, so much here. Luke 4, verse 14, tells us, Look at that, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Here is just the whole fulfillment of Isaiah, the expectation that the Messiah would come in the power of the Spirit. That's Isaiah 11. In Isaiah 9, if you remember, that great messianic promise, the Galilee of the Gentiles that was in darkness now has seen the light. So here is Jesus going to Galilee to fulfill that promise by Isaiah. They would see great light. Luke chapter 6, we have... Uh, The calling of the twelve disciples, and that's the restoration of Israel promised by the prophets. In Luke chapter 9, that's very powerful. Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 9, 
as we come to the mountain of the glory of Christ, verses 28 to 36. And there, Jesus is talking to Moses and Elijah. Some believe that's the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And it's fascinating that they are talking, verse 31, who appeared in glory and spoke about his exodus. That's the Greek word. The English is departure, but the Greek is exodus. So they're talking about Jesus' exodus, the exodus that he's bringing about. So, and then we move to the last gospel account, that's John. And John also takes us all the way back to Genesis. In the beginning, what? Was the word. In the beginning, reminds us of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then also John used the language of light and darkness, taking us all the way back to creation to show that now this Son of God is bringing a new creation through His life and death and resurrection. In verse 14, chapter 1 of John, John tells us that the words, many English translations says, and the word dwell among men. But it's actually a very strange verb, hard to translate, but would be tabernacled. And the word tabernacled among men and reminds us of the tabernacle and the glory of God in that, pre- in that place now being transferred to Jesus. He is now the tabernacle, the temple of God dwelling with man. Then you have John the baptizer declaring that Jesus is the true Lamb of God who will bring the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That's John telling the crowds, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What is that? But the Passover Lamb who has come, and now he will bring the better exodus. And then John says that he is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Fulfilling the promises of the prophets that the Messiah, the new David, would bring about the outpouring of God's presence through his spirit. So, in summary, the Gospels show how Jesus inaugurates the new covenant. All the expectations is spoken by the prophets of a new creation, a new exodus, a new covenant, a great resurrection, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and the new Davidic king are all fulfilled in Jesus. The prior covenants and the covenant mediators, they find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So, to quote Gentry, he says, Since all the biblical covenants are part of the one plan of God, no covenant is unrelated to what preceded. And no covenant can be understood apart from its fulfillment in Christ. It's right to say that all of the biblical covenants reach their telos in Christ and the new covenant. The telos means the goal, the fulfillment. And now that Christ has come, all of the previous covenants find their telos in Him. What the previous covenants revealed, anticipated, and predicted through various patterns, types, and instruction is now here, albeit inaugurated in inaugurated form. That is why our Lord is presented as the new covenant head, who, is, who in His person and work is greater than Adam by undoing what Adam did, and thus winning for us the new creation, the true seed and the offspring of Abraham, who brings blessing to the nations by his cross work, the true Israel fulfilling all that she failed to be, and David's greater son, who rules the nations and the entire creation as King of kings and Lord of lords. And then if you continue through the New Testament, you see how Acts shows the fulfillment of the, all the preceding covenants in Jesus. You have In Acts chapter 15, James declaring, together with the other apostles, that Jesus and the ingathering of the Gentiles is the fulfillment of Amos chapter 9, where in Amos chapter 9 there is the promise of the restoration of the Davidic tent or dynasty. And that's what they're showing. Now it's fulfilled. The restoration of the Davidic dynasty series. The Gentiles and Jews getting together. And then in Acts chapter 2, you have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The resurrection is spoken by Ezekiel. Nations start the Exodus journey to the mountain of God. The heavenly Zion. Under the reign of the new David, Jesus Christ. So at Pentecost, we have the Tower of Babel or Babel, being reversed. 
In the Tower of Babel, we had the nations being dispersed and the languages being brought into confusion. And in Acts chapter 2, it's the coming of the Holy Spirit. You have the nations coming together and understanding that same language. So, you see here how all these covenants start to find their fulfillment in Christ Jesus. The New Testament letters explain and teach us how to live under the new covenant. Jesus gives us a new Torah. He says, a new commandment, a new Torah I give to you, love one another. So Paul, Peter, James, John, and the other authors helps us to live under the new covenant as a new creation, a new Adam, with a new Torah by the power of the Spirit in our lives. And that's why Paul emphasized so much in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Why? Contrast with humanity in Adam. In Adam. You're no longer in Adam. You are in Christ. You are a new creation. Okay? And the book of Revelation brings a closure to all of this. And we see the glory, the consummation of the new creation. And we see the church as the true Israel, a kingdom of priests with people from every nation, tongue, and tribe. And the end of Revelation tells us dwelling with God in a much better Eden. So, the goal. What is the goal of the covenants? So we can finish here. The goal of the covenants and the new covenant in particular. I would argue that the whole drum of redemption from creation to new creation is held together by God's covenants with mankind. It becomes tempting for us to think that the covenants are the most important thing in the Bible. So some people start think that the covenants are the most important thing or the major theme, and I would argue no. It's not the most important thing. The covenants serve the most important thing. And the most important thing is for us to uh, dwell with God, behold His beauty, enjoy His presence. In the presence of the Lord, there is fullness of joy. There is life. The triune God creates and recreates a people to reflect His royal image, expand His kingdom, reign under His rule, and dwell before His smiling face, enjoying the shalom of His presence as priests. And that's what the covenants help us. Morales says, Life with God in the house of God, this was the original goal of creation of the cosmos and which then becomes the goal of redemption, the new creation. And that's why Jesus says, in my Father's house there are many rooms and I'm preparing them for you to dwell with God. That was the goal of creation. God creates Adam and he says, no, I don't want you right there. I want you very close to me. So he brings him to Eden, the house of God. To dwell with him. We lost that with Adam and Jesus restores all those wonderful things that were lost. So we see how the covenants, using Jason Derouche here, his picture, how all the covenants, like an hourglass, they come to fulfillment in Christ Jesus. From Genesis to Revelation, we see the coherence, the beauty of the unity of the drum of redemption. God bringing his people to dwell with him. So, one more quote here to finish. The covenant structure, Morales says, the covenant structure driving redemptive history has one aim. For God's people to be planted on the mountain of God so they may dwell in his house and gaze upon his beauty forever. It's moreover precisely this aim that generates all the dramatic tension in the biblical drama that plummets one into the perplexing dilemma of how a holy God can abide among a sinful people bent upon rebellion. Oh, and that lifts up the soul into the mystery of a divine love that opens that way. And that's exactly where we are in history. That's where we are in history. You look around and you want to discern what's going on. You're not going to discern what's going on. You've got to look to the scriptures. That's where you are in history. You are under the new covenant if you're a Christian. Enjoying all those blessings, promise in the Old Testament. 
Those who are in Christ Jesus, they are a new creation. Sin no longer must reign and rule over those who have received the Holy Spirit. We enjoy the presence of God every time we come together to worship and we ascend the heavenly Zion. We are a kingdom of priests. We expand his kingdom by being image bearers of Christ and mediate God's presence to this dark world. The temple of God, the church, is being built with living stones from every nation, language, and tribe. So as Christians, we must know, we, we must know where we are. Otherwise, you're going to get depressed. Hopeless. Know where you are in the covenantal drama of God's redemptive history. If you are a member of the new covenant, you have right now, that's what the Bible says, not just for the future, right now, you are a new creation, Paul tells us. You are a new creation. Not that you will be. Yes, we long for the consummation, but has been already inaugurated. You are a new creation. You have been restored from the exile of God's presence. You have your sins forgiven. That was the promise of Jeremiah. And now we remember their sins no more. You have the Spirit of God empowering you. You have God's Torah inscribed in your heart. And you have the greatest privilege of all. To behold the face of God smiling at you because of Jesus Christ. There are no excuses for you to continue in sin. No excuse for you to continue in slavery to pornography, laziness, gluttony, nicotine, alcohol, depression. Being marked by a lack of joy, lack of self-control, lack of boldness. Slavery to the fear of death. Being busybody, being self-centered. There is no excuse for us to be marked by that. If we are under the new covenant. And we are bought by Jesus Christ. Because either the Bible is true, or people who try to come up with excuses for these things are liars. And I believe that the Bible is true. We have the Spirit of God within us. The same Spirit of life spoken by Isaiah, who transformed Zion's wilderness into a glorious Eden, is within us, empowering us. So, John's words are beautiful. He says, To him who loves us, we, the most unlovable people, apart from Christ. Don't you ever think that you're lovable by God? Our sins make us heinous. That should drop us to our knees. To him who loves us, he loves us. And has freed us from our sins by his blood. And look at the language of creation. And made us a kingdom. Priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Sometimes people say, what do they do with all these things? Paul says, oh the depth and of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Sometimes we just need to get on your knees and behold how majestic, how wise, how beautiful, how fantastic this God is. From Adam to today to everlasting. His plan of redemption is beautiful. Jaw-dropping. And that's why the more I study these scriptures, the more I love him. The more I behold this, the unity, the coherence of his word, my heart is enlarged and I behold this God who is so beyond anyone's comprehension and that he would love us and freed us from our sins. So, the psalmist says, here's the prayer of the psalmist. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple, for He will hide me in His shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me. He will hide me under the cover of His tent. And He will lift me high upon a rock. The prayer that the psalmist had, we have the answer and the fulfillment in Christ. 
we have the privilege of dwelling in the house of the Lord. What was reserved for the priests, for the holy priests, this, the, the high priests, once a year to enter there, that they was torn apart and given to us this access to dwell in the house of the Lord forever and behold his smiling face, his gracious face upon us. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your love and your mercy and your wisdom, the riches of your wisdom and your plans, how unsearchable. We stand in awe that you'd work through all history, all the history of mankind, raising kings, putting down kings, lifting up kingdoms, putting down kingdoms, and yet, you had each one of your people, each one of your sheep in your heart. Lord, we thank you for your mercy and your love towards us. Thank you for making us a chosen nation a royal priesthood, a people of your own possession. Once we were not your people, once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy, and we are your people. And Peter tells us why. To proclaim your excellencies, the excellencies of him who took us out of the kingdom of darkness, out of the exile of death. And with Jesus brought us into the kingdom of light and life and joy. Thank you for saving us. How miserable was our lives before you brought us into covenant with you. And Lord, for those who are here and they don't know you, they don't know you in a covenantal way. They might know you with their minds. They have some knowledge of you, but they don't know covenantally. I pray that you'd conquer their hearts. Bring them to their knees. And cause them to confess their love towards you. Behold your beauty, your glory. There's nothing more precious than you, Lord. Nothing. So help this church. Help us to be faithful to you, Lord. Help us to be a faithful kingdom of priests. We are a new creation, so help us to live as a new creation. We have the Spirit within us. We have your Torah inscribed in our hearts. You have given us the power to conquer the domain of sin, Lord. So empower this church to be a living image of Christ Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.